welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And this is the official podcast of the Church of Truth Without Christ, or um, actually just the uh, official podcast of the SwampFlicks.com website, one of the two. We are going to be talking a lot today about atheism and uh, the <laughs> South and all these other things, but uh, we also just wrapped up our best films of 2021 list which is a month-long process that uh, was narrowed down to 10 selections between seven contributors. And we just posted that on the website this week. And before we get into any topics we had set aside for today, I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts on the final list or any questions or concerns or comments about how that uh, all panned out. I thought the list was beautiful. I was pretty proud of it. I liked how it came together. Uh, I was disappointed by a couple of obvious snubs. In my opinion, I feel like um, we definitely had a snub for Crypto Zoo, but I participated in a chili cook-off last weekend with um, some friends of mine, including my old roommate, and I had really, really pushed hard for them to watch Crypto Zoo the last time I had seen them, and um, I was told they had a bone to pick with me about my recommendation of that. So even though I think it's a snub that it's not on our group top 10 list, I just could be wrong. Well, it was also on my top 20. I think the trick is that you have seven people contributing. You just need to like get one of us to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Because you have two, two out of seven people watched it, so it was mathematically impossible for it to make the cut. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's like how Brayden and I were sad that I blame society didn't make it, so... See, now that's different because I actually successfully got six out of seven people to watch that. Um, they just don't love it as much as I do. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that was bad. a different um, failure. I do feel like sometimes I, I just end up being like a, a disruptor. Um, sometimes <laughs> unintentionally or, or intentionally. Sometimes I'm, I, I get it to you. You know, this this is my uh, sixth of these to contribute and sometimes i get them to you like before the year is over and sometimes i don't get them to you until mid-january and i've never intentionally disrupted anything but i have um if i thought that something was getting too many views i have not watched it brutal wow so my one question is um because i know you were kind of trying to explain it to us um but i would i don't know maybe for clarity for everybody how does the process of taking our picks and making a list for the whole site go um so most people like you have everyone contribute based on the same number of selections and then you award those points so like the number one pick gets 20 points and then 19 18 down the list and then a total number of points, you know, just adds up to the highest number ranking. I don't like that for us because they're kind of like chaotic lists. So if Boomer and I both had CryptoZoo as our number one, that would overpower all the other selections. And I don't feel like that's a true consensus. So like CryptoZoo would have landed on the list in that way. Um, my method is uh, more basically an inclusion on a list is like a vote. So um, nothing was going to make the list that wasn't on at least three people's list. And like that's more of a consensus, in my opinion, is like if a movie was at least three or four people's idea of like one of the best movies of the year, then it made a ranking. Um, and then from there, you know, averaged out on where it ranked on their list. 
Did that make any sense? That <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes sense. Maybe it's easier to see on paper than it is to explain out loud. Oh, I I understand. So yeah, everything's weighted towards the top. So like, Titan was our number one movie of the year. It would have made it in that space either way, but it was the only movie that was on all seven people's list. Wow. And then from down there, you know, Pig, Barb and Star, and St. Maud were on six out of seven. Uh, the Green Knight was on five out of seven, and then down the line. I love that Barb and Star was up there. It made me so happy. I know there was a moment where Brandon wasn't sure if it was going to make it because it wasn't on my list. You and um, Cece were kind of wild cards there because uh, I don't think she loved... Titan as much as everybody else, and um, Barb and Star did not make your list. So I was I picturing this like scenario where Barb and Star was like weighted to the top. But it, <laughs> it didn't work out that way. That would have been wild. I I don't know. I just thought this was a really good like representative of who we are. Yeah, there's a lot of like high art stuff. There's a lot of like aggressive um, <laughs> genre films, and then there's a few like just absurdist comedies mixed in there too. Uh, so it is it is like a full range of things that we like. I, I will say my method is different than Boomer's, where um, if I know that something is going to be on a lot of people's lists, I go out of my way to watch it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I also always assumed that we were operating under a ranked choice voting system. Meaning what? Meaning, like you were saying, that if you both you and I had put CryptoZoo at number one, it would have been on this list by virtue of how much it appealed to us. See, I don't think it's right for two people to be over to overpower the group like that. Okay. Especially since like CC and I watch every movie together. Not every movie, but like James and Hannah watch a lot of movies together. So the list really could pan out to just like their favorite movies of the year <laughs> and a few other selections from everyone else. I understand oh that. And but I thought that was how it worked based on how highly ranked Deerskin was last year, a movie that I had never heard of. No, that was very high on CC, James, Hannah, Brittany, and me. <laughs> We're all very high on Deerskin. Um right. it was very clearly our number one movie of the year. You just hadn't happened to watch it. Yeah, I know sometimes I'm out of the loop. <laughs> sometimes the loop is me and sometimes i'm the loop i will say this podcast is a great way to weaponize consensus if you have the floor you can make someone watch something <laughs> which is uh, a useful tool yeah. if you're trying to like advocate for a movie i guess i'll take that under advisement yes yeah, since we're future weaponizing our lists now it did not pan out with i blame society did. even though it was my number two of the year <laughs> very high my on number two as well, as well. Yeah. Our one and two were the exact same, which is why I was like, I don't know. I think my list is going to be very similar to Brandon's. I will say there's one movie, Brandon, that you and I have already watched that is already going to rank pretty high on my list, probably. But I guess we'll get to that in a minute. Well, jump into it now. I think uh, you are first up for this uh, What Have You Been Watching Lately segment. Well, I, let me ask Allie first. Allie, have you been watching anything? I have not been watching anything. I've been uh, really focused on school this week and managed to get my adult mental health first aid certification. So, oh, hell yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I highly recommend that process if you can handle it. It's a little emotionally draining, but it is really important. And uh, if you can't go through that process, at least learn how to listen not judgmentally to your friends who are in crisis yeah that's my mental health spiel and i didn't watch anything so 
Uber, what have you been watching? What is going to be the movie that y'all weaponize this year? Well, I watched ten things so far. I watched ten Whoa. movies. I know that's a lot for me. It's very uncommon. Um, I guess I should start by saying that Cat and I finished season nine of the X Files. Um, uh... so we finished the original run, and therefore, I had a lot of all that time that since March of last year has been taken up weekly by uh, watching the first nine seasons of the X Files has now cleared because we were taking a little time. But that leads me directly into something that I watched last night. Uh, I, Kat and I watched X-Files, I Want to Believe. Uh, I really liked it. It had a really great X-Files feel, especially coming on the heels of seasons eight and nine, which of course, you know, season eight is when David Duchovny was less involved and season nine, he wasn't involved at all, sort of until the finale. And those are sort of the Doggett and Reyes seasons. And even there's even less of Scully as time goes on. So this one is not a movie that is about the mythology of the X-Files. It's just like a feature-length Monster of the Week type episode where there is a released felon who's a sex offender who starts having these visions that uh, are, are leading the FBI in this film represented by a lady and dude agent pair played by Amanda Pete and exhibit, <laughs> um, which is an interesting choice, but they, they both are great and not to spoil the X files, but at the end of it, Scully and Mulder are on the run. As we know, I, 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 it's been 20 years. I think it's okay to say it on this podcast, but this picks up some, you know, six, seven years later. And they are settled into a place, um, and mostly the FBI just seems to be happy to be free of Mulder. This person, <laughs> <laughs> this person starts to have visions about a missing FBI agent. The FBI first reaches out to Scully, who at this point is like just practicing medicine and specifically is working with this uh, child with a terminal disease. And even though apparently it was not very well received in its time coming so closely on the heels of actually having watched the show, I, I found it much more meaningful than that audience in 2008 probably found it to be, especially because they mention the X-Files, you know, themselves, like the actual files and how Mulder started them originally because he was looking for his sister and of course, William is the baby who has been put up for adoption by the end of the X-Files. So we have this like child, I mean, it is like a sort of somewhat cliche littlest cancer patient kind of plot line for Scully, where, you know, there's a, there's a boy and he's sick and she's pushing for like these potentially um, experimental treatments, which because this is 2008 means stem cells. But the way that the film is kind of a meditation on, and it was Kat who said this, so I need to give her credit for this, but like a meditation on their respective losses, that this Amanda Pete uh, FBI agent character, who is roughly the age that Mulder's sister would be, coming to him and asking him for help and their interactions, that she is sort of a representation of Samantha and this sick child is obviously like a representation of 
William to Scully. So it's actually really good. And it's, it's set in West Virginia during like, you know, uh, the winter where it's like snow everywhere. And although the first X-Files movie, they did go to like Antarctica. And there are a couple of other episodes that take place mostly in um, like icy environments. You really feel it in this one. Like the ice is really oppressive. Like it has a really, it's, it's a movie. So it's kind of reductive to be like, it's very cinematic, but it is very cinematic. And Chris Carter wrote and directed it. And there's just lots of really great sequences where there's just snow. There's just snow everywhere or snow with just hay bales beside the road that, you know, a car crashes into. Everything feels very, um, every, <laughs> every frame is a painting essentially to, to reference <laughs> that YouTube channel, but it looks really great. I think it was, it's a really great continuation of the X-Files story. One of the things that really interested me is that the missing FBI agent who's being sought is named Monica something. And I kind of wonder if originally the plot was about Reyes being kidnapped and they just changed the last name and left the first name as Monica. Cause that to me seems like it would be even more reason for uh, Scully and Mulder to reunite uh, with the FBI on an investigation. It's more political than the X-Files usually was, which I guess it would have to be, right? In the sense that the final season of the X-Files was airing when 9-11 happened. And so 9-11, just as like a, a, a national event, kind of marks the end, among many other things. And this is a very minor yeah. thing that happened as a result of it. But it did mark the end of a time period in which conspiracy theories could be fun you know where it was kind of a yeah. harmless thing to make a tv show it was about. kind of quirky yeah, yeah. And then it became like a mainstream concept yeah and a mainstream concept that has completely destroyed the brains of like 75 percent of americans so this one which takes place kind of at the end of the bush era it has like a moment where you know, Scully and Mulder first go to the FBI office for the first time since, you know, the show. And there's like a portrait of W hanging there. And it like the X-Files dun, 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 like little theme sting plays over it where it's like, okay. And it's also very interesting to me that uh, stem cells are such an important part of the film as it relates to science. And it reminded me a lot of how uh, the television show Fringe, which in many ways is the post 9-11 X-Files. Um, I will not be taking follow-up questions. Uh, <laughs> how in its opening credits w had all of these fringe science concepts in it. And when they would do like a flashback episode to the 80s, the fringe scientific concepts in the updated 80s version of the credits included things like lasers and in vitro fertilization things that were like fringe science concepts at the time. And it's interesting that in 2008, stem cell research is considered like almost fringe science. But that is not the thing that uh, we both watched, Brandon. I watched The House. I did really like The House. And I, I think I referenced that um, last time we recorded. Yeah. You did recommend it. And then I watched it. And then I texted you. I was like, I want to write about it if you haven't already. And it hadn't been published yet, which is, I think, why... I was like, let me write about it. But you published it. It was like going up that same yeah, afternoon. Like, yeah. yeah. I was like, all right, 
<laughs> so I I did read your review, obviously, and um, I agree that the first segment is the strongest. When the second segment started, I was a little bit disappointed that it wasn't a continuation of the story from the first segment, just like jumped ahead in time. But then that segment was was very strong in and of itself. Oh, definitely. Even though I was disappointed in the first moment that it was not a continuation of the previous story, and it was clearly, you know, Ali, this movie moves from being about humans to being about like vermin. And then finally to being about cats and they all live in the same, they all live in an identical structure. There's a a house that's identical that appears in every uh, segment, but logically they cannot be the same house. Yeah. It's more of a symbolic thing. Yeah. Um, The first segment was so creepy and so scary and so well done. And the second segment is so uh, it gets under your skin that really that third segment does sort of feel out of place, especially in its sort of optimism. Cause the first one is just sort of an abject horror, you know, uh, Allie to just give you an idea of these people. Well, I don't want to spoil it. You should just watch it. Um, okay. We should at least say what it is. It, it is a stop motion anthology horror comedy yeah. uh, <laughs> on Netflix. And Netflix has done a terrible job promoting it, but it's really beautifully animated. Um, and it's all about this one, like you said, this one structure um, that's like this aspirational house. It's like this giant house that all the people who af- who own it cannot afford it. And it like ruins their lives because of that disparity. Yeah. The first segment is kind of like a Regency era fairy tale about a person who once had more and now has less. And what they're willing to put up with to have more again. Whereas the second one is much more about like the anxieties of home ownership but also just like it's very i mean i guess you could say it's a critique of capitalism but only in so far as just like it's about a contractor who's very stressed about selling this house which has fundamental and foundational issues and also uh, they are not um super stable themselves (laughs) um and then the third segment though it it also feels like almost like a fable or a fairy tale but not in the same sort of grim way that the first two do it's much more i feel like for one thing it's much longer than the other two almost and i i I don't know It, it ends a little optimistically which i think is fine in general but like maybe i would have considered that as like the second part of the film instead of the third just so that you kind of have more of a a sandwich than yeah like uh you know something kind of light at the end a sweet dessert <laughs> i'm gonna like kind of rush through a few of these because i don't have a lot to say about them um i saw encanto oh yeah how the was disney that? film it was great um for like a child i guess um <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know i i watched it um i wasn't super impressed by it personally i just kept i i think that it was very well sort of animated yeah yeah i i mean it looks good for what it is but you know i i, I what does that mean even you know yeah. like what does that what does that entail we we got it because uh we temporarily have access to someone's disney plus account like one that was signed up for with uh, like a, you know, the free seven days or whatever. Mm-hmm. So 
That was provided to us by someone who wanted Matt to watch Encanto. And I know that it meant a lot to them and they really liked it. So I don't want to say anything negative about it. I think that if you are a child, you'll really enjoy it. (laughs) Also, why are you listening to this? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, if you're a child, press stop immediately and go confess to your guardian that you've been listening to this horrible podcast. That Well, not horrible, but definitely not for the children. It's a little blue. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, it's cute. The whole thing is that, you know, this girl is born into this family and they all have these gifts. I don't know what everybody else's tolerance is for Lin-Manuel Miranda, but mine is low, very low. That's the main thing that, like, is holding me back, honestly. And with good reason. If you are a person who enjoy on the spectrum of, like, enjoys to tolerate his particular style, then you're going to have a much more time consuming this Disney product. But I, I, I wasn't in love with it. There were parts of it that I really liked. I thought some things were really cool. The, there was like a, an escape from like a, a, a place that was filling with sand that really reminded me of Aladdin. And it looked really cool in CGI. And, you know, uh, it just sort of kind of felt like I was waiting the whole time for it to get going. Like if you were to watch like Beauty and the Beast, and instead of going to the beast's castle at like you know the 11 or 12 minute mark or whenever she goes it's like at the 40 minute mark that's what this movie felt like it just felt like it took forever to get started and get even on the road to where it was going i'm gonna say i recommend it if you know a child because if you you know if you're listening to this podcast and you know a child maybe they'll enjoy encanto um, because of this Disney Plus access, we also watched, for my first time, Ratatouille. Oh, nice. I'm going to say that I assumed that I knew 100% of the plot of Ratatouille from being <laughs> on the internet and being alive and the memes. Uh, but you really only know like 80% from the memes. There's more happening in it than it really seems like. But that doesn't mean that I enjoyed those parts. I kind of could have done without the rat's family. I kind of didn't love that, but all of the, you know, all of the restaurant stuff was great. I would suggest pairing Ratatouille with Pig. Yes. I was just about to say Pig. <laughs> great minds, right? Yeah. Two, like, Netflix movies that I'll run through real quick. I saw something called Code 8, which was just a movie where the Amel cousins, Steven and Robbie, got to play superheroes again, because I guess maybe... Maybe after they left their respective CW superhero shows, they had an itch. Um, but this one is one where it's just about people in a world and, um, they have powers, not superheroes, but people with powers. And of course, the people with the powers are extra policed and they decide to try and pull off a heist, which was an interesting, like, wrinkle in this idea where it's like a heist powers movie. But that is an, unfortunately not as much a part of the plot as you would hope, because it immediately becomes more of like a sort of post-heist crime movie or who's turning on who, etc. It was perfectly acceptable for what it was, but I think that it was it came to Netflix three years ago during that period where Netflix had just lost all of their great content and before they started having good content again. 
right? During that era of like every single service thinking that they were going to open their own and basically make cable happen again. Yeah. And that's how you end up with something like Code 8. <laughs> Aftermath was another one that came out in 2021. It's like a thriller uh, about Sean Ashmore and his wife. And he's like a crime scene cleaner, which is kind of was what hooked me at first. But he is cleaning like a crime scene. And the woman who is inheriting the house, who's like it was like her brother and his wife who who were, you know, murder suicided. Um, and she offers him like a really big discount to buy the house. And he and his wife kind of do that to try and save their crumbling marriage. But maybe the house is haunted. So I bring it up because it does the thing that I like. Okay. It does the thing that I like where it's like, maybe it's supernatural. Maybe it's not. And then comes down on the side of there being like a, a realistic explanation. And so, you know, I'm going to say spoilers for this one because it did come out just last year or in 2021. Skip ahead 20 seconds. The only problem is that the spoilers start here. The only problem (laughs) is that the explanation is exactly the same as it is in Housebound and The Boy. There are so many movies in that category. (laughs) It just it keeps turning out to be the same explanation over and over again. But I will say. I still like it better than it always being a supernatural answer. <laughs> I watched a movie that you did a review of uh, a couple of years back, Brandon, when it was newer, called Paradise Hills. Oh, I really liked that one. I saw that in the theater with a Q&A with the director at some oh, festival. Wow. Really? Do you remember anything really fascinating from that night? Um, Not really. Uh, she was dressed really well. <laughs> I think she has like a background in like fashion. It's kind of the the one takeaway I remember, which makes total sense because you know it's set in this like kind of tea time fantasy world that's like ultra femme, and the costuming is like so much the visual artistry on display. It it, t- it tells a lot of the story, just like how people are dressed in this like beautiful fairy tale cage that they're living in. Yeah, uh, that was a movie that I really thought was pretty. I really liked right. to look at it. Plot wise, you know, uh, I will say whenever sometimes I I know that this is going to come as a shock because of the way that I've changed so much over the years, Brandon. But I honestly, at this point in time, think that it's totally fine. And Allie, you've been around at this point for a long time, too. And I've de- I know you've definitely yeah. read my opinions in movie of the month stuff mm-hmm. that I've changed my mind about. But something like the criticism that I was hearing about crypto zoo was about its plot. And it's like, okay, actually I think it's plot is great, but I also don't think that it matters. Yeah. Like when we talk about crypto zoo, what we're talking about is, are the images that this like illustrator and creator was able to make. Right. Where, you know, the scene where they finally find the Baku in the back of the fortune teller's house, And she opens the door and it's just like one long beam of light illuminating. And it's doing that by hand. It's doing that with actual talent and craft and artistry. And the plot holds together better than a lot of these do when it's a film that's mostly just there as a vehicle to present images. Yeah. I think it's okay if images is all a movie has too. Like it's a visual art form and like, the style is substance on its own. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to do that and the images you put forth are lazy or like overly familiar, then yeah, that's a problem. But um, if, if you're going to like 
have just the bare bones of a premise and uh, that's just an excuse to hang beautiful images off of and then those images are beautiful and singular, like, that's really all I need. Like, one of my favorite movies from the last decade was The Neon Demon, um, and I don't think that movie has much of a plot. No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I just like looking at yeah. it, <laughs> which I think I could probably say about a lot of my favorite movies from yeah, the last I was going to say, I, just, I think a lot of my favorite movies, just generally. Right. Half of the Criterion channel is just, like, uh, beautiful images <laughs> with uh, very confusing, like, bare-bone plots, but that's fine. Yeah, and I, I just, I didn't always feel that way, so I'm going to, I'm going to take the knee on this one and own up to that <laughs> which says that there have been many times that i was like this movie was bad because it didn't have a good narrative or i hated the narrative or i hated the plot or i hated the characters and although i'll stand by my readings of other things from those particular reviews we've been doing this a long time and i'm not the same person that oh, yeah. i was <laughs> always so i'm just gonna go ahead and put that out there sometimes it's fine if a movie is just because i think that i was hyper focused on narrative because i like the three of us i write and so for me that's my primary like thinking uh, uh, uh my primary sorry <laughs> i'm a writer i like my thinking it's my primary <laughs> thinking. no um I, i'm you know the words aren't coming to me because you know i'm not, i never thought i was a great writer Glad I'm not the only person that writes that has that problem. <laughs> it it's happens like, uh, what's I think the it word happens that to means everyone. this very basic thing yeah oh yeah I guess I, I just I, I did a little more reading about like film as an art form sort of pre like the assumption of narrative and it changed my mind. I never let it be said that I'm not capable of uh, being <laughs> wrong or admitting to being wrong. Um, I thought Paradise Hills was fun. It was very pretty. There wasn't much to the story. You know <laughs> what there was wasn't <laughs> that interesting. But it was a very like pretty movie to watch and be dazzled by the spectacle of the costumes and the um, Aquafina of it all. <laughs> um, and to once again do a complete 180 topic wise to something that's uh, all beauty and no narrative. I will say that the primary thing I've been doing with this temporary access to Disney Plus is consuming as much Muppets content as I can. I'm just like, okay. Muppet yes. me up. Muppet, Muppet. Um, but one of the things that I did manage to do, um, and not all in one go, which tells you a lot, is I had a morbid curiosity about Disney's Marvel's The Eternals, which came out last year and was roundly mocked on Twitter, including, like, some of it genuine, uh, but most of it AstroTurf movement to, like, really push the Disney brand. Like, I'm not I'm not buying into the conspiracy theory of, like, paid-off critics who are paid to, like, write good reviews of Marvel movies and bad reviews of DC films. Like, that's a bunch of nonsense. But I'm we do need to accept the reality that like Disney adults don't need to be paid to tweet endlessly about something that looked like a mud pie like this movie did. Well, there's two <laughs> contingents, right? There's like actual critics who are actually like reviewing something. And then there's like kind of this hype squad form of criticism that's very specific to the um, online era yeah. where it's like your entire job is just to get excited about every new product from your brands like whatever you're a fan of like a capital f fan yeah um i think the difference between this one and most like uh rah rah like we're so excited to see this movie disney releases is that 
Disney also tried to appeal to the critics who are interested in like film as an art form um, Boy, beyond they. the IP worship because they hired an Oscar um, winning director yeah. uh, who you know just won the Oscar for best picture last year and hired her to make like basically the Malick version of a superhero movie um, and it's like mixing you know peanut butter and vinegar it's like two things that are good separately but like together you're like fucking that's disgusting <laughs> yeah you know no one's ever accused us of being paid to write positive reviews for marvel movies because we don't have high enough of a profile for that and i think we talk often about the fact that for every single one of us this is a money loss endeavor oh yeah this Not- podcast and this website costs me money we have never this paid is my for any money sucking hobby you know yeah. uh i think i think you've gotten a press pass before and that's it that's like you know, right now the the way that I get paid to do this, I guess, is is criterion access. Like, right, right, right. We a, share logins. You know, <laughs> bearing all of this in mind, we have never been accused of this, and I would say because I write the majority of them, I'm generally pretty positive. And if I'm negative, it's usually in retrospect. Like looking back on that Captain Marvel review, it was much more. I, I gave it a higher star review than I really. Uh, wanted to and uh, or really feel like is appropriate now and looking back I'm like god with all the complaints that I have and how kind of hollow and empty it is it's hard to believe that that one made me feel something whereas something like the ones that I still look back on fondly and remember I'm like yeah that was a that was a five-star movie but I'm also not going to like pretend like I, I think that we've also all of us been very critical of like the Disney monopoly because our government doesn't give a shit about breaking up monopolies anymore. Like when we were trying to find where to watch the X-Files movie, I checked Disney plus to see, and Kat was shocked because she had forgotten that Disney owns Fox now. Right. Yeah. They do dump most of their Fox content on Hulu, but um, they are also very strategic about that. If they can hide something behind a paywall, they will find a way to do it. Well, and that's because they also own Hulu as well. Yeah. And that's the thing is (laughs) that they, you know, when they, they have all of the superhero content from Fox on the Disney Plus app because they're sort of consolidating that under their Disney brand more than they are, you know, the like Marvel their, brand. Like, or family like, thing. Yeah. So re- with regards to the Eternals itself, it's, I, it's one of those movies that seems like it's looking pretty and doing nothing, but it doesn't really look that pretty. There are a couple, Every time they do like a crane shot, or I guess, uh, I guess, or I guess they're drone shots. They're not helicopter shots so much anymore, but drone shots over like vistas. It is pretty pretty. It's very beautiful. Like, you know, they go to Alaska and the ice is just this blue and it's almost like it's glowing. But anything that has people in it is bad. And there's a lot of it that has mostly CGI people in it. And, I don't understand how anyone could have seen this on the big screen and felt anything other than pity or secondhand <laughs> embarrassment. And I know that like Chloe Zhao is a great director. It's not her fault. I disagree with that. Oh. <laughs> or at least she's not to my taste. I, I don't like the two movies I saw from her. They're just not for me. I guess I just want to make it clear th- with this that as some, I, I, I'm not attacking this director. I'm attacking the house style that they were forced to accommodate. And I'm attacking... The bad CGI. Like, people talked about seeing a lot of terrible CGI in Black Widow. But it is about these movies that the C- 
CGI just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, ah, well, we talked about it. <laughs> Costuming is a union job. Puppetry is a union job. Physical effects are union jobs. CGI are not union jobs. And they just run those people through. They put them through the ringer. And at this point, they're producing a product that because of this internet hype squad is going to turn a profit regardless of quality. Like the post credit sequence has a character that's all CGI and it looks worse than like the Beowulf movie that came out when I was <laughs> oh in college. God. There's a character in it that looks worse than like this 15 year old all CGI garbage fest. I, I think another unique thing about recent releases is that um, Disney is very into announcing all of their release dates like five years in advance. Yes. Yeah. So like a movie will come out on that Thursday night, whether or not the movie is done. So like they do as much CGI work as they can and then just release it. They'll work up to the deadline. I don't, I actually don't think that's true because there have been a okay. lot of delays because of COVID. They have pushed a lot of stuff back. I know Black Widow was, push, was pushed back a year. Okay, but they pushed it back because the box office was not profitable, yeah. not because the movies weren't done. <gasps> right. I can almost guarantee they've put out movies yeah. that were not actually finished to like the quality God, that yeah. they should be putting out at that I, budget. Okay, level. that's true. I was making the point that they do seem to be willing to push them back if there's a reason, but you're right in so far as it's purely a monetary one. Uh, right. 100%. Has nothing to do with quality control. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I I have seen people complain about the quality of the Marvel movies like going downhill, and I have to t- say I hadn't really noticed it until this one, and in this one it was all I could see. Um, and then I'd like to talk about two movies that I saw and I loved. I know that we are already long on time, but uh, I'll do this as quickly as I can. Inspired by the release of Scream 5, I decided to rewatch The Faculty. Oh, great film. I also love it. It's a real big mess, and it's so much fun. <laughs> it's so good. It's of all the like post scream attempts at doing like a high school like slasher or high school horror, where you got your uh, urban legends, uh, which <laughs> urban legend, excuse me, it's singular, which I love, but know is complete and utter garbage. <laughs> I know what you did last summer. You got your teaching Mrs. Tingle. I still know what you did last summer. Your parodies like Scary Movie. You've got all of those. The one that I think works best is The Faculty. Um, it's got a really, really great cast. Like, honestly, there's not a person in it that I think isn't famous or wasn't famous. I think the least famous person in it was still someone who, like, had a good run on Dead Like Me. You've got your Clea Duvall's. You've got your Josh Hartnett. You've got your Jordana Brewster, your Elijah Wood, Fomka Jensen. And it's got Robert Patrick in it. He's the best part of the movie. He is great in it. As a Terminator fan, I'm just like, T-2000. Yeah. When I uh, rewatched it um, a couple years ago, I, I didn't want to write, write a review of The Faculty, because, you know, it's like a movie I watched a lot as a teenager, so it was like, what's the point of, like, doing, like, a starred review of this film? That's just, like, part of my brain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I completely agree. I completely agree. Just to, just to be 100% on board with you, it lives inside of me as much as Scream does. <laughs> right, right, right. 
Yeah, and I've seen that original Scream so much, and I was just talking to you about how I've never seen most of the sequels. Oh. Um, I have no recollection of any sequel of that franchise. Two is just as good. Three is the worst one. I love four. I think four is actually really great. And uh, I guess we'll talk about Scream 5 in a minute when we're done talking about the faculties. That's the other thing I saw. But go on. I will fix that this year. I'll I'll catch up on Scream uh, because of the new release. It's a good, like fire under my butt to catch up with that but um what i ended up writing about was about how um robert patrick as the football coach is such a great way to make horror nerds squirm like just him terrorizing elijah wood just thinking back to how much i fucking despised and was terrified of every athletic like pe coach i had as a kid yeah um and like how he is like a surrogate for that like target audience that like horror loving teen nerd um i was like damn they really were tapped into my psyche at that time because <laughs> like he's a fucking nightmare in that movie and he's so good at it and i think they could have just made a movie called the coach uh the same way that like their movies like the stepfather or the dentist uh and it would have been just as effective <laughs> like he's he could carry that whole movie by himself without the aliens i think Oh, absolutely. 100%. I agree. Has a great soundtrack. I think it's worth mm. noting. Um, at least in my opinion, for this movie, it's very appropriate. When I say great, I also want to make sure to note that Matt could see how much I loved it because it was of my time. It does right. not appeal <laughs> to people who might be younger than us and didn't see this as part of their like uh, childhood. But, you know, it's got, you've got your offspring, you've got your soul oh stone, you've got garbage, and Bitch. Oasis, and stabbing westward, and also Creed is there. Oh my um, god. Covering Alice Cooper. Oh my god. And the Class of 99 cover of both part one and two of another brick in the wall. Wow. Oh my god. Beautiful stuff. I definitely owned that CD as a kid. What a time to have been alive, right? What a time. Yeah. But of course... As I've already spilled the beans now, I saw Scream 5 uh, on the big screen. And by the big screen, screen. I went to the drive-in. It's not that big. And honestly, there were points in this movie where people were reading text messages that were very difficult to see on it as it rippled in the wind. But I still followed. And I especially, I, I don't love the fact that I followed it enough that my very first guess of who the two killers were were the killers like i was i didn't love that but i turned to cat and i said i'm gonna tell you now in case i turn out to be right but i'm pretty sure the killer is x and y and boy was it um and i think that what's great about the scream series is i think the second time i saw it it had been so long that i legitimately didn't remember who all of the killers were i didn't remember who any of them were and it's such a good twist uh every time that isn't scream three it's a great surprise. I think that that is what the Scream franchise, like it doesn't have, because Ghostface isn't really a, is a legacy character instead of being like a character in and of itself that carries over from movie to movie, like Freddy or Jason or Michael, like there's no boogeyman in Scream other than just like people. I think that that gives it sort of an infinite renewability or maybe not infinite, but more so than, you know, how is Freddy going to trap you in the dream world? And also the fact that these sequels are spaced out so far, they continue to like, they don't really make one unless they have a reason to. As far as the negative, though, it takes 
a really long time before Sydney shows up in this movie. It's like a really long time. I was tapping my watch wondering where Gail Weathers was, and she still showed up like <laughs> like it takes a really long time for Sydney to like them to get Sydney on the phone, which for one thing, if I were Sydney Prescott, I would never own a phone again. I'm gonna be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> write me a letter yeah uh, especially because like it, she seems to be you know this is not a spoiler at all she seems to actually be living a pretty well-adjusted life in this one in comparison to like others that she had had in the past like um where she was living off the grid and was just like a suicide hotline operator like but they still managed to find her here she seems to be like living in public she's she's jogging when we see her just out in the world if I were Sydney Prescott, you would never see me again. You, I would not have a phone, and I would not jog. I don't care if it is daylight and there are a lot of people around. I will ride an exercise bike in my home. Um, so that's my big complaint, really. It's it's clever. It's not quite as clever as the others. It's a pretty decent sequel in this franchise that really means something like to me, like that I really like, and. This one, uh, its meta commentary is on fan culture in a way that I'll, I'll get more into when I do my review because I don't want to. I've taken up enough time. And yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say, Brandon, what have you been watching? Uh, a random assemblage of stuff, probably even more titles than you just ran through, but I'm going to try to condense them to two a piece that the two of you might be interested okay. in. Okay. Okay. I picked one from Boomer's Best of the Year list that I hadn't seen because it was in a genre I really like. I watched Plan B from Natalie Morales. Oh, yeah. I really liked it. I knew I would like it, though. Honestly, like, I don't know why I waited so long to watch this. It was my number four this last year. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was very high on your list. Um, I, I don't think it would have made mine just because I do love this genre and I've seen so many examples of it. Um, and I'm thinking of Blockers... Um, the to-do list, book smart. Um, there's that television show, never have I ever, which is in the same vein. Um, and I'm grouping those as like this, like deep porkies version of the, uh, teen sex comedy where like, instead of like teen boys trying to get laid, it's teen girls doing the same thing, which does feel like a radical shift from like decades of teen sex comedies. Like usually girls don't actually want to have sex. That's something they're like protecting themselves from while boys are like trying to like talk them into it. Um, and recently there's been this great crop of like flipping that on its head where it's like, you know, of course girls want to have sex. <laughs> All teenagers are very horny um, and they will make increasingly um, insane self uh, defeating decisions to achieve that goal. Uh, <laughs> and I think plan B fits very snugly in that group. Um, it does one weird thing though, uh, which I have not seen these other ones do. Where one of the main characters is queer, which every single one of these comedies does that. Like, every single one of them has at least one gay character in the main cast. But they save that detail to, like, a mid-film reveal. Like, it's like a gotcha twist in the middle of the movie. And I found that extremely odd. Like, even in the movies in this crop where someone's closeted, the audience immediately is clued into it, but her friends don't know. But like in this one, it's like, a, oh, you didn't know she was gay. That felt really behind the times to me. I don't know. It's just like a weird decision um, considering how upfront and just like not a big deal it is in every other version of the story. Yeah. For her, you know, I understand it for her because like 
part of what's happening there is like frequently like the strictness of particular families that are different from like our families and like the concerns about that with regards to like how traditionalist certain reactions are going to be not just from your friends but from their parents and that her father is a pastor it made sense to me narratively but i also agree with you that it did make it feel more like a time capsule from the 90s than it really was yeah which is weird because the movie actually is very political in other ways especially when it comes to birth control which is what it's really about um I'm honestly just like fixating on this one thing that makes it different <laughs> from like uh, a very similar crop of films. And I like all of them a lot, um, including this one. So I don't know, just a weird thing that stuck out to me. I get that. I also watched this movie called Language Lessons from last year, which was also directed by Natalie Morales. Uh, she made two movies last year. What? I didn't know this. Very odd, right? Like, I'd, there were a few directors who did this who were obviously like going to be more of a big deal. Like, Ridley Scott had two movies out. Right. Um, Hamaguchi had two big ones, uh, one of them very likely to win Oscar stuff uh, coming up. I had no idea Natalie Morales directed a movie last year. She directed two. Right. Uh, (laughs) This one, um, it's a laptop film, very COVID-era film production stuff, so it's like um, kind of like Unfriended. Oh, Lord, the internet's in it. Yep. (laughs) But it is a uh, more of a friendship rom-com. Like, it's it's like a uh, rom-com tone but it's not about people falling in love it's about people becoming friends it's her and mark duplass uh natalie morales is in the movie oh uh mark duplass plays this uh very wealthy oakland hipster uh who his husband buys him 100 spanish lessons uh from this not as well off person who's played by natalie morales and uh she is very reluctant to reveal any personal details about her life. And he is very open because, you know, he's like super privileged and like, why would I protect myself from anybody? I don't really care. Like I got nothing to hide. And the two of them form this like very cute, very uneasy friendship over um, a year's worth of Spanish speaking lessons. Uh, And there's a lot of stuff that happens in their lives off screen that um, jolts them into a more personal relationship than uh, just this, like, client Spanish teacher professionalism. Like, she really wants to maintain this, like, professional veneer, uh, and it just breaks down because life is messy, uh, and they become closer and closer friends as their lives get worse off screen. And I thought it was really cute. Uh, Like, you were just saying, Allie, like, I have a weakness for internet cinema, (laughs) and... uh, this one does the same kind of screen life thing you'll see in like Unfriended or in um, Host or any other number of like laptop POV movies. Uh, it's just a little cuter and softer. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I've ever told y'all, but I just went to high school with Mark Duplass, which is funny. Oh, really? So really? The first time I was watching something with him in it, he was like, wait, <laughs> I know him. <laughs> oh, yeah. He went to Jesuit, yeah. right? So that was pretty funny. He makes sense in this context. Like him and his brother cut their teeth making like very small movies that are like just a couple people and a camera. Mm-hmm. That's how he built his little empire. So that half of the thing makes sense. Um, but Natalie Morales is the one out of the two that's credited as the director. Um, and I can see with Plan B and this one, there are some similarities in how she has like a very sharp ear for like character work. Yeah. And 
one-liners. Like she has like these very like good jabs of humor that you like don't exactly expect when they show up. Like something's like much funnier than you initially hear it to be. <laughs> like you kind of laugh like a second later. And then I'd say nothing especially flashy about her visual style or anything in either film, but just the inter the interpersonal play off of actors in uh, both movies was like very promising. Like I could see her making subversively political comedies uh, with really good performances from two or three people bouncing off of each other. Yeah, uh, forever. <laughs> she could do that forever. I agree. I uh, you've never watched The Middleman, right? We've already established this. No, and you haven't started watching it since our last discussion, based on my glowing recommendation. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, no. <laughs> um, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of her performance of the character that she plays in that show in Plan B. I think that it's almost omnipresent. Like you can, I can hear her voice in the delivery from the two uh, main girls. And so uh, if you are saying that you get that same sense from her other work, I believe it completely. And the two I have for Allie are just movies that are um, from directors that I know, I know you like. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been watching random, like literally just hitting shuffle on my um, letterboxed watch list because I don't have a lot to watch for the site right now. And just watching the first thing that's available. I will connect these at the end, but uh, <laughs> I watched um, Kung Fu Master from Agnes Varda. Oh, nice. It's not one of her higher profile movies. I think, in fact, she was working on a documentary on Jane Birkin, and they paused production to make this smaller movie <laughs> during a break on the documentary. So, like, this is, like, the lesser of two movies already. But I actually found it very substantial. Jane Birkin is in the film... She plays a middle-aged mother with two kids, and she falls in love with her daughter's classmate, who is a 12-year-old scrawny boy. Agnes Varda and Jane Birkin's kids play the two children, so Charlotte Gainsbourg and I think Matthew Demi are the two children. Uh, so it's basically like these like two mothers and their two kids filming this like basically like child predator love triangle. Um, and the movie does not judge her for doing this. Like, she is obsessed with him because he is a boy. Like, her favorite thing to do is to watch him play the titular video game Kung Fu Master on this, like, arcade game. Or, like, she likes to listen to him talk about the rules of Dungeons and Dragons. Like, endlessly babbling about, like, little boy nonsense. And she finds it very dreamy. Which is very difficult subject matter, obviously, uh, for you to watch this like woman fall in love with a child. What works about it is that it's set, obviously, in the late 80s when it was filmed, and they go to, I think, London and maybe another city in France where the specter of AIDS is creeping into the frame in every single scenario. So, like, when they're walking around London, punks are handing out these, like, AIDS pamphlets... Or, like, when they go to the arcades, there's all this, like, AIDS information on the walls, and there's um, condom dispensers in the arcades. Or, like, uh, they go visit her parents, and um, the television is playing, like, AIDS epidemic news coverage. And you just start to get the sense that the reason that she's falling in love with this kid is because it's safe. Like, she's this like, single mother who's afraid of sex, um, in the current, like, plague that was, like, 
taking over Europe at the time, especially in the city. And the, the two of them had this like romantic getaway on this like island away from all other people. And yeah, it, like I said, it's a very difficult subject, but like there's something very heartbreaking about this like regressive hiding from adult sexuality into like the like schoolyard crushes of her youth um, to get away from AIDS, uh, especially the fact that a couple years later it wasn't announced till decades later, but you know, Varda's husband and Demi's father died of AIDS related complications. Uh, so I don't know. It, it's a very like dark movie, but I found it like really emotionally moving in a way that I did not expect. Mm. That one's on Criterion. Uh, I also watched Bong Joon Ho's debut film, Barking Dogs Never Bite. I have Hulu. seen that one. Yeah, <laughs> that movie's fucked up. It is. Uh, I did enjoy it when I saw it. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw it, but yes, I did like that one. <laughs> it's very much a debut film from the year two thousand. Yes, by which I mean it feels like it's a hangover from the nineteen nineties film festival yep. type movie, like. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about clerks, the fact that like all these listless people with like no direction in their life, that's sort of like Gen X apathy slacker stuff. Uh, they're hanging around this like apartment building, just waiting for um, their lives to get better before they move on and do something with themselves. Do you go in terrible apartments? Like, I swear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a high rise, unlike the apartments in uh, Parasite, which are like downhill <laughs> and get flooded for being physically lower than everything else but uh, otherwise yeah very similar shitty living conditions in both movies the premise is that a professor who is out of work is sitting around his apartment that his pregnant wife pays for all day just like frustrated about his stalled career and there are yapping dogs in the building um, that just bark incessantly and he takes out his frustration on his professional stuff by murdering these dogs uh, these like small little pathetic yeah. chihuahua-sized puppies. Yeah, it's kills like them. real upsetting. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of on-screen dog violence in the film. Oh, really? Okay. It's very hard to look at, but it's played as. I a assumed it was in the abstract, joke. but it's not. No. Okay. This movie opens with its, um, you know, no animals were harmed warning instead of saving it for the end credits. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it kind of has to because it's very convincing. I don't know what puppetry. Or, like, hidden harnesses they it's use. extremely convincing, like... Ugh. Yes. It's mm. the kind of thing that makes, like, uh, does the dog die, like, catch fire? <laughs> when yeah. you, like, type it into the search engine. <laughs> mm, okay. But it's very funny. And um, <laughs> the, yeah. really. the vigilante who, like, tries to take him down so she can get famous as, like, this uh, person that stopped this series of dog murders um, has this very cute storyline, uh... And everyone's kind of listless slackerdom is very charming in the way a lot of those, like, high-style, low-budget 90s movies could be. The reason I want to bring up these two movies as a pair, though, and what I think is interesting about them, is that both Varda and Bong Joon-ho have become these, like, internet memes. Like, I feel like they've been sort of defanged by becoming these, like, cute avatars for film culture. Because it's like, Mm. both of them just super like radical politics and like once again like june ho's movies don't shy away from really graphic violence like it's not right (laughs) they both make like political art and they're both like willing to push your buttons and make you uncomfortable and it's just very funny to watch them become these like 
happy mascots for like film culture, mm-hmm. uh, especially Varda. Like yes. e- even Bong Joon Ho, the, the most I'm thinking about is him making his Oscars kiss, which was very adorable. So I think about that constantly. So you know that that may be on me. I might be perpetuating this. <laughs> I think about it too. I think it's super cute. But then I feel like um, the more we infantilize them like that, we sort of like lose track of like how fucked up and transgressive their actual art is. Ah. And I was just thinking about those movies as a pair because of that. And I, I think they're both great films. Like, yeah. I, they're just very difficult watches. Or one of um, them is ways. very great, but I'll, I'll trust the other one is because I love Varda <laughs> so much. Uh, even, even that movie starts with um, the kid, Matthew Demi, pretending to be the karate character from the arcade game he's playing. And he mimics the 8-bit motions of like a side-scrolling karate game from the arcade era. So even that, I feel like, is a telegraph of like kids on TikTok and things will do these videos where like they play like an NPC character mm-hmm. in a um, GTA game or something where there's like, this is how you look when you like stand around. Or this is what like an innocent bystander looks like in a video game. Like she was already doing that in the late 80s. I feel like that clip could be something out of context that someone would find adorable and like shareable in like a meme format. But then the movie that follows uh, really uh, puts your ass to the fire and like makes you squirm uh, with some really uncomfortable cross generational sexual predation. So I don't, I don't know, I don't even know what to make of that. I, I just find her very difficult as an artist, yeah. uh, which is why we love her. On top of being, you know, an adorable troublemaker and, you know to be fair like i would say that bong joon ho's work is at least like people recently have been watching it and have been digging it and enjoying it like i mean obviously parasite like, like people you don't think about watching foreign film and enjoying it liked parasite i wonder how many dog murders that crowd is willing to sit through uh for a laugh that is a <laughs> big question Something to take the place of Jesus. Something that would speak plain. Now, the church without Christ don't have a Jesus. But it needs one. It needs a new Jesus. One that's all man without blood to waste. That don't look like any other man. So you'll look at it. Give me such a Jesus. I got him. I mean, I can get him. Him, you've seen him yourself. Him that I show to you the new Jesus. I'll get him. I'll get him for you, Hazel. You look at me, and you look at a peaceful man. Peaceful because my blood has set me free. Hello, all of you out there in listener land. This week, we are talking about the film Wise Blood, starring America's darling Brad Dourif and directed by John Huston. And it is based on a novel by Flannery O'Connor, which... I don't think I realized until about 10 minutes in when I was like, oh, I read this book. It's faithful <laughs> to a fault. Brandon and Allie, what did you think about Wise Blood? So I think this is both of our second time watching it. Yeah, I have a history with this movie. Yeah. I liked it more this time, but it's still pretty like lukewarm. I'm about the same. I saw it about a decade ago because I, I went to a thrift store looking for DVDs because that's how I can afford physical media. Right. And I 
picked this one up because it was at a Bridge House thrift store, and uh, it was a Criterion DVD, which if you go to secondhand shops for all your physical media, you don't that is that like finding amazing. a diamond in, on the beach, you know? Uh, yeah, I used to swipe those up when I worked at the thrift store. Especially, my favorite thing is when they still have like the book inside. That is the holy grail. Oh, God. The dream. And I watched this with Virginia, who was my roommate at the time. And I think like maybe like half an hour into it, we looked at each other and we're like, is this bad? Like, I think I don't like this. Which... Now, I mean, Boomer, you were talking about earlier how, like, uh, the past five years of, like, writing and thinking about movies critically has changed how you think about stuff. Like, ten years ago, to think that there was a Criterion release that I didn't like or care about um, was kind of unfathomable. Because, like, they felt like this, like, marker of quality that I couldn't afford to access. And uh, watching this movie was like, Oh yeah, I don't have to care about a movie just because it's in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. Like, my taste does not completely overlap with their curation, uh, <laughs> which sounds so small and petty um, at this point. But at the time, felt like a revelation of something. I think we all go through that. Like, if you like movies, that's that's the stage you go through. It's like a growing up moment. I will say it did also improve for me on rewatch just for the rare chance to see Brad Dourif play a lead. That is the thing is like it should be good on that basis but instead I'm just kind of like eh. Um, I think part of the problem for me is just like so much of this I'm like oh my god this is like growing up this is like my childhood like how come the South has not changed at all? Boy see, I, yeah. I don't Boy, know. I, I kind of feel like it's kind of condescending to the South in a way that like I don't know. It kind of reminds me of, like, Jerry Blank laughing at poor Southerners. It's like, poor Southerners, they're hilarious. And yeah, there's a lot of, like, pretty much everyone on screen is vile, racist monster. Uh, but they do a lot of, like, Dukes of Hazard, like, uh, ironic um, sitcom music playing in the background while, like, these racist assholes uh, bumble around and are total idiots. And I, I, I not only was angry about how the South hasn't changed, but also angry at the condescension uh, from outsiders making fun of the South. Yeah, uh, and, and but the it South and its representation are the same. Yes. Only Southerners can really make fun of the South, right? <laughs> Which Flannery O'Connor gets successful. a pass. Right. Uh, John Houston is from the South, is he not? He was born in Missouri. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and Brad Dourif is from West Virginia. Yeah, I okay. believe that. So... I didn't feel like it was as mocking. I felt like it was more of a portrait of damnation in its ignorance. I guess for anybody listening who's never heard of this movie, which is probably most of our listeners, which is not a slight against our listeners, it's that this movie is, it's a Criterion DVD that ended up at a bridge house. Like, if you haven't <laughs> heard of it, like, that's not that surprising. Brad Dourif plays a man named Hazel Motes, which is M-O-T-E-S, which is, of course, one letter off from Moses, because uh, this is a Southern Gothic literary adaptation, and by God, there's going to be a Moses in it, um, or like a Moses, uh, what you call like a squint Moses, like you squint at it and you can see Moses there. Anyway, Hazel Motes, he's a veteran, he comes home from the war, it's not specified which war, but considering that this book was published in 52 you know we can make our assumptions um 
the family farmhouse is abandoned and dilapidated, and he puts his name on a piece of furniture called a chiffre robe, which he spells out as chiffre robe, which that was the moment that I was like, oh yeah, I read this book. <laughs> From there, he goes into a nearby southern city that's clearly Macon, because everything says Macon everywhere, because it's Georgia. Um, but it's, I forget the fake name of the city, but there he almost immediately runs into a simpleton, an 18 year old boy who's been like kicked out of his family home and ended up in the city where he doesn't know anybody and works at the zoo, supposedly. Uh, in the novel, I'm pretty sure he actually works at the zoo, but I'm, I think in the movie, it's not, it's not <laughs> he it's might just be lying. clear, yeah. Uh, that character, so here's the other part where I'm like, oh my god, it's like my childhood. That character is like a less violent version of my brother. Oof. So it's like, oh my god. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, he's rough. He reminded me of someone that I knew, but in a much less traumatic way. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. Uh, my family's messed up because they're the Southerners that these movies are about. <laughs> Did you recognize that actor? No. He didn't actually. That's Dan Shore, who played the Ferengi doctor transported to the Delta Quadrant by the temporary wormhole. Oh, wow. And the, the price, ding, that ding, Voyager, ding, 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 ding. once Here's again, the you know, from the next generation, and then it's Voyager the runs into no. them. Which is so funny because then you got Brad Dourif. So. Yeah, and then you've got Brad Dourif, also Star Trek Voyager's own Brad Dourif. Yes. I left my goddamn bell in the other room. <laughs> This is tragic. We were, we've been lulling you into a false sense of security. <laughs> we've been planning this, obviously. Uh, <laughs> just to catch you off guard. Uh, yeah. Underneath the Ferengi makeup, it's kind of hard to recognize people unless it's like Wallace Shawn. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the other major thing that happens in this movie is that Hazel runs afoul of this preacher who is pretending to have blinded himself as an act of faith along with his daughter, uh, both of whom are Marjo-esque con artists, which is, I think, what attracted me to this movie based on what I knew about it, was that there was a, a con artist sidewalk preacher and the establishment of a new church. And I didn't realize why is blood conceptually in my mind it didn't stick as a title in order for me to remember that I already knew what this narrative was going to be. And it is extremely faithful to the novel to the point of being not really sure why it exists. And the fact that, you know, whenever I read um, Fried Green Tomatoes a couple years back, I was reading it on the bus, so <laughs> three years back now, and we watched the movie not long after that. And I remember reading the book, the frequency of the use of the N-word in it made me very like conscientious about or self-conscious about somebody seeing me reading it, like reading it over my shoulder and seeing that word. And I feel like with literature, there's a discussion to be had for that, but I did not enjoy hearing Brad Dourif use the N-word in this movie. I didn't enjoy hearing it from anyone at all, but especially not America's darling Brad Dourif. What the shit? Well, he does not um, halfway commit to any word pronunciation. Like, any word that he's going to say out loud, he's going to make a full meal of it. So hearing him toss out racial epithets for, like, two hours or whatever, um, 
you're going to hear them with the most violent underlining yeah. <laughs> of anything you've ever heard in your life because this is how he talks. Uh, so it, it is difficult to hear him do that over and over and over again for the full runtime. Also, just because I don't feel like race really plays into no. the narrative in any way. Like, they no. are racist characters, but you don't see that in any practical dynamics between any people in the cast because if there are any black people, they're just kind of like bystanders on the streets of Macon. They're not actually yeah. in the narrative. I, I'm of two minds with that, to be honest, in the sense that a lot this having been released in 1979, but based on a novel that was almost 30 years old, think that at this point in time, they should have known better than to put it in the film adaptation. But I also, one of the things that is strange to me or that we rarely talk about with regards to society's ongoing 80s nostalgia is that maybe in it but definitely not in stranger things are you going to hear a bully call another boy like the f slur yeah right and it does represent the past as a more sanitized thing than it was uh in the sense that like I feel like to an extent period pieces should reflect not just like a nostalgic, glorious, purified version of the past, because that's how we get like appeals to tradition and like nationalism and and that's at the core of it. But I also did like I said, I did not <laughs> I did not enjoy hearing Brad Dura say the N word in these trying times. I don't think that you shouldn't do it. I think that if you're going to bring up something that strong and that evocative, it has to be for a reason. Yeah. Like, it's the same way that I don't like rape revenge movies where the rape is just there to incite another event and isn't actually dealt with in the plot because it's a very upsetting thing to have to sit through. So, like, there better be a good reason. Like, you better address the issue um, instead of just doing it and it's just sitting there. That's the stuff that's like really distracting to me. Yeah, and admittedly, in something like Fried Green Tomatoes, that it that is a pretty large part of right the plot is is race relations. So, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the book, I'm sure she it was, would talk yeah. about race. Yeah, like it's just not addressed in this I mean, movie. I mean, like you're also saying- kind of a racist, no, because she was a product of her time. Yeah. So to be faithful yeah. in this way is real weird. Sure, you know. She died in 64, so, like, she she died before the emergence of the 20th century civil rights movement, so. I, I, it's not about, like, first of all, it's not for me at all to be like, oh, this person gets a pass. Obviously not. I think she was writing in the language of her time, and there that was not necessary to include in this film, except insofar as it reflects the racism of the time. But again, it's it's mostly... I, I, okay, the only time that it ever seems to be a commentary on something is after Hazel and Sabbath Lily are saved by the trucker, or the, the guy who runs the wrecker service, who has an amputated arm, and he immediately is like, oh, I don't need no help from... You know, and he says some racial epithets and then a one-armed man. And it's like, well, you literally just did. And that's the only time right. there seems to be a commentary upon uh, Moats's outright racism. And it's kind of a joke at the expense of how stupid he is when it happens, which I think is most of the humor in the film is just how idiotic all these like racist country bumpkins are. 
which I don't know. That that joke runs pretty dry pretty quickly for me. So I, the novel I do not remember as being funny. That could be my like uh, personal feelings uh, reflecting upon it. I don't remember discussing it in class as being a novel that was funny. It's a tragedy about this man, right? It's about a man who has a tragic past because of his uh the way his life was shaped by religion and the way that it continues to shape it even as he tries to do the opposite of that his his life is still about faith it's just it's not that he is an atheist he's an anti-theist by the end and the fact that they then made this movie and here's the other thing that shocked me pg for real what 70s were wild with their ratings. Yeah, this was pre-Gremlins, which is when PG-13 came around. Is it Gremlins or was it the... Oh, it was Gremlins together with um, Temple of Doom. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I just think, like, it just speaks to the larger question of, like, why adapt this? Yeah. Like, what are you getting out of it? And I was looking for signs, like him coming home from World War II and, like, being disillusioned about the place he grew up in i'm like oh is this like a vietnam allegory that john houston's carving out here or like just the, the random events that follow is just like well i guess that doesn't really pan out in any way it's not really like something that really means anything to the plot and it's the same thing with the racism of the characters like it, like you're saying it is true to how people would have acted and spoken at the time but i just couldn't really get an angle on the reason he wanted to put these events on the screen like he read the book thought that those events needed to be illustrated but why yeah. like what what was his approach like what was what was he getting out of it i i don't have an answer for that even now I haven't seen it twice i do want to go ahead and say he probably was a veteran of the korean war i was gonna say i thought it was korean okay. war they said World War II in the synopsis I copied and pasted, but uh, that doesn't mean it was accurate. Yeah. Off the internet. The, the novel <laughs> was released in 1952, and the Korean War was from 1950 to 1953. And, you know, it's often called, like, the Forgotten War, and so here's this, like, forgotten veteran that's just right. hanging around. I, I think that that's textual. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I was just saying, I was trying to find some kind of, like, purpose in that. Um, I don't think there is one. Um, yeah. I think that the fact that, like, you weren't that we we only know what war it is by supposition and that you knowing what that it's different from the initial assumption doesn't change anything about it is is actually evidence of how irrelevant it is at least to this narrative if not to the novel but i think um we can move on to just saying what is awesome about this which is the intensity of brad durf's performance <laughs> and the badass atheist church yeah. he's uh, creating in this small town those two things worked yeah i i was like wow he's so lean in this he's a very <laughs> yeah. slender man he's it, it reminded me of when i was watching possession and what a like slender slender man um sam neil was in that yeah. And it's like, wow, these men, you know, back in these days, I, I guess, I don't know what they were eating, if it was just lettuce and beans or what, but everybody's speed. skinny as a rail. <laughs> yeah, okay, speed, you're right. Also, like, um, I think the other great thing is if you're going to hire, like, a con man, angry, violent preacher guy, Harry Dean Stanton, what a casting choice. It's great. He's also great in this. Yeah. I, I completely agree. His quote-unquote daughter, I thought, matched Brad Dourif's energy in a fun yeah. way, too, uh, which is hard to do. Yeah, yeah, she was great. Yeah, 
Um, I actually like wrote it down how much I love the scene where she's like, I declare you're cute, ain't you? Like with the, the, the <laughs> mummified body, I was like, oh, same. That's exactly my reaction. Oh, what a cutie. <laughs> but I do like this as like a Saint Maud type movie. I'm sorry, my brain is still in like best of 2021 mode because I've been working on this for a solid month. But uh, some, something we all talked about was like how she just makes up a religion and like completely devotes herself to yeah. it and holds everyone else to her values. And even down to the point where like both characters put rocks and tacks in their shoes to yeah. remind themselves of like their devotion to God as they walk around. In in this case, he's devoting himself to like in the flesh human pain yeah. on earth because uh, he is a staunch atheist. Uh, but I could listen to him preach his uh, truth without Christ religion um, for hours without any of the other stuff in yeah. the movie. And I would have been just as fine if it was like a character study about that. Uh, I I don't know that I agree. I don't know that I disagree though. <laughs> <laughs> I It seems like a lot of word salad to me. And it seems like his, he, I think my biggest problem with this performance, which is hurts me to say about America's Darling Brad Dourif, uh, is that there's an awful lot of repetitiveness. There's there's something about this performance, and I'm going to say some things about the boarding school that I went to and about theater kids. Oh my God. There is a certain kind of theater kid who is definitely the most theatrical person at their uh, high school. Yep. And someone never told them no. And then if they were in the high school, like theater department, and then maybe even into college, where everything is extremely like, it's all about the thespianism and like the performance, and they can't turn it off, they would give the same performance that Brad Dourif does. It feels like there's an awful lot of sort of mindless repetition. And I know that it isn't, but the fact that the words don't really make sense in the order that they're in causes it to become almost like a like a madness mantra that i'm not sure it's working as well as they think it is personally i was but it following for you. along with what he was preaching pretty well okay like, i like him as this like corner like street corner snake oil salesman that is specifically mocking the or like yeah like literally like just like copying the cadence of a preacher to tell people they don't need religion and that their lives are empty because they've like filled their lives with religion and um, him trying to sell this product of nothing to them is very funny yeah. to me, especially cause he's like, you know, the, the typical snake oil sale, you're like, look what the wonders of snake oil have done for my body and my life. And he does the same thing where he's like, look at me, I'm a peaceful man. Um, and like not having God in my life has brought me peace, right which if you listen to him talk, on the road. he's the least peaceful man in the world. <laughs> he's intensely angry. Yeah, I think that that's where I guess the logic of it, uh oh, where the logic of that performance is lost on me, I guess. <laughs> Here we go with my logicking. He's logicking. What's not working there? I I guess it comes back to what we talked about before, which is why does this movie exist? And there doesn't seem to be a reason for it to. What we get as far as his, his life, and this is where I had major Marjo vibes, was the flashbacks to grandfather's preaching tent, like his traveling Played circuit. by John Houston. Yeah, played by John Houston. And that looked like actual footage from like Marjo from when we watched it. 
And so it exists in that space for me where I'm like, okay, he grew up this way. He went to war. He came back. And now he wants to evangelize an anti-faith. And he's giving these speeches and he's saying that he doesn't want the people's money. And so he's an inversion of these other con artists. But I guess it's such a faith, like like I was saying before, it's such a faithful adaptation of a book where so much is done through implication that you just don't have the time for here. I guess what I'm saying is I like those scenes separate from everything else. Like, oh, okay. I literally don't care about anything else or how it's connected to them. I just think like as a performance self-contained to those scenes, I, I think those speeches are like what is thrilling about the movie. Like, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything else that really matches the novelty of him preaching atheism, like an organized religion on the street corner in that intensity. That's, where the movie is actually doing something exciting. Okay. Uh, so like, yeah, maybe it doesn't logically connect to anything else, but I, whenever, when anything else happened, I was not interested anyway. Uh, so I wasn't trying to make the connection, I guess. <laughs> I will say there was a part here where there was like a very specific over the garden wall quote that I say kind of all the time for no reason uh, came to my head. And it was when crazy boy who reminds me of my brother stole the gorilla suit and jumped out of the back and all I could think was like that's right darling ah was the gorilla (laughs) (laughs) I think they're both referencing the same like silent era comedies where like a gorilla's on the loose that was a hell of a scene it's very broad yeah totally in in this film totally inconsistent it is it is very strange that this is mostly the harrowing story of a man losing his mind but every once in a while, they throw in these, like, you know, banjoy goofy comedy Ugh. background songs. And it's what's happening isn't funny. It's like police brutality and mm-hmm. um, a mentally unwell person robbing someone. It's not, it's not like, ha ha, he's got to chase his car down a hill. It's like, wow, he's, he's really fucked. Yeah. I think it depends on how funny you find poor Southerners. Like, True. I think there is a contingent of people that find destitute Southerners inherently hilarious. Uh, and the music is, like, underscoring that. Maybe it's supposed to be ironic, uh, and that went over my head. I mean, it is ironic, but I th- maybe, like, the humor of it is supposed to be ironic. I don't see at all, like, how it's funny. So it kind of seems to me like, you know, making fun of the idea of people finding things like that funny. Because it feels like it's played like extremely like without the music, like extremely straight. Like, yeah, I just don't like your face. Kind of, but the gag that ends with where the cop steers his car into the lake or whatever—that's very just slapstick comedy. Like him chasing after the car. The line delivery is played straight, but then it's followed up by like a visual gag at the idiot's expense. I don't know. The humor of this is really was off-putting to me. Yeah, the, I, I think that's we're all in agreement that it doesn't seem like... I, I think we all think its sense of humor is wrong and are made uncomfortable <laughs> by it. However, we're in disagreement about what specifically makes us yeah. most uncomfortable. Which might just be like it's just difficult to read intention into this. Yeah, uh, I think that is, is part of the problem. biggest thing is, what's the deal? <laughs> Why did you make this? Yeah. I have less questions about why this is made than the last John Houston movie we watched, which is The Visitor, which is all nonsense. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of got how that came together. I have no idea how this came together. Not that he directed The Visitor. That, yeah, that, I was that would be say. a wild detour in his career. Yeah. Well, as y'all had already seen this, I'm sorry for making you rewatch a movie in which Brad Dourif says a lot of racial slurs. I actually liked revisiting his performance. Uh, I, I'd forgotten yeah. how intense he was in this, and I, I appreciated that. I've watched worse movies over again. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I don't know that I'll be watching it a third time, though. I think this might be me tapping out on Wise Yeah, I think I'm also, uh, also going to tap. Uh, well, next episode, we are going to be talking about four movies that we all really like. Uh, <laughs> so it'll be a, a different turn. Um, we're going to talk about Lady Killers, Women Who Kill. I wanted to call that a femme fatales episode, but like I started reading about what that term actually means, and it doesn't just mean fatal woman. Like It's um, more like a woman who um, brings disaster into your life. Yeah. No, we are talking about women who murder people. It's the topic, so I'm trying to like work that title in there. Starting with uh, Leave Her to Heaven from the 1940s, uh, kind of like a post-noir melodrama about a woman who kills people. Uh, and it's fantastic. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie before, but it's also on the Criterion Collection, and it's a Technicolor delight. Highly recommended. Like we already mentioned, our top 10 films of the year list went up recently, and Boomer's review of Scream 5, I assume, is going up soon. We've been posting daily recently, like a movie review every day. So check out the website, swampflix.com. Bye, everybody. Don't believe it